0: So, it's really all walks of life. I mean, anybody can become more compassionate once they are intentionally, or once they intentionally decide to become more compassionate. And they don't have to take a training program, but it Seems like it'd be uh, not easier, but more guided way to do it.
1: There's certainly more accountability when there is a teacher, there's homework, there's recording, there's small group. And then there's also just this element of community that gets created where everyone's doing the same practice and there's question and answer period. So it is quite nice, but you can certainly um, cultivate these um, states within yourself without taking an eight-week course.
2: So just to stick on the eight-week course for a second, to give people a sense, what, what would they expect? Um, you mentioned that there's homework and there's there's accountability, but maybe just sort of walk us through what, what yeah. all the steps entail.
1: Yeah, so uh, the eight-week course is generally two hours uh, once a week, usually in the evenings. Um, the class size is anywhere from 25 to 30 people. Um, and the idea is, is, that you're introduced to some of the science behind compassion and then also these different practices. And then we do an in-class practice. And then the idea is that each week the um, student or the participant is then practicing this practice, this one practice every single day. And so initially we start out with 15 minutes of practice, and then we build up to about 25 to 35 minutes of daily practice, and so the CCT program at Stanford—the one that I'm a certified teacher of—really um, introduces these practices um, through these six sequential steps. Um, the first step is really um, sort of settling the mind, focusing attention, or what many of your listeners might identify with as being mind as mindfulness, right? Mm. Which is just the ability to notice our attention, notice our judgments redirect attention back. That's really considered to be the very first step. Um, The second step in the Stanford program is uh, loving kindness and compassion for a loved one. So again, if we're sticking with the pool analogy, this is the shallow end of the pool, right? Um, So loving kindness, um, but also compassion, which can be difficult thinking about our, our loved ones suffering in some way. Um, from there, we consider compassion for oneself. Um, and we actually break up this self-compassion into two weeks because for a lot of people, self-compassion can be the most difficult part of the program.
2: Um, Back to that that's fear. Why,
1: that's why Kristen Neff has an eight-week program dedicated to self-compassion. So she has the mindful self-compassion program. So if you want to spend eight weeks on self-compassion, then I would highly recommend her program. But In the Stanford program, we have sort of step three that's broken up into two parts where you're um, thinking about your compassion for yourself, so your own suffering, and then loving kindness for oneself. Um, After that, we then go on to thinking about um, shared common humanity and appreciation for others. And this is really where we're thinking about um, how we're interrelated and interconnected with others. So, um, for example, lunch today, I had the salad and it had tomatoes and avocado and cucumber on it. And I could pause for a moment and think about all of the people who were involved in creating the salad for me. So the person who planted the tomato or picked the tomato or packaged it and really sort of thinking that those people also wish to be happy and free from suffering. Um, from there, we introduce a step around compassion for others. And we're expanding our compassion to include strangers, so people whom we've never met or we do not know by name, as well as uh, what we call difficult people. So this is the deep end of the pool where it's a little bit cold, dark and scary. Right. Um, but these are the people who can be challenging for us in terms of our, our compassion. And then, um, we go to the sort of sixth and final step, which is, uh, called active compassion practice or tongue len. So this is sort of taking and giving, so breathing in and breathing out, um, Sort of cool air in and sort of this bright white light out. Um, it's a, a Tibetan practice. And again, you know, this program this program was designed by Tukdam Jimpa. So um, it's heavily influenced from the Tibetan tradition. But it's important to note that uh, at Stanford and at Google and at the Ha School of Business, you know, we teach this class in a way that um, is really sort of uh, secular in nature so that it's not, we don't really talk about Buddhism or religion or, or anything like that. So it can be quite accessible from my experience to people with with different backgrounds. And so ultimately the idea is that these six practices or these six steps, are um, sort of combining into one practice. And it's sort of this daily integrated practice that we hope that after the eight weeks that people are then continuing the practice.
0: And it sounds like being that these are, are highly organized uh, steps that these have to happen in, in sequence, um, that they need to be performed to develop uh, compassion over time. Is that right?
1: So I, I tell my students to think of this, like a tasting menu at a fancy restaurant where you're giving, you're getting a brief preview of a bunch of different, uh, dishes in this case practices. And then after the eight weeks, you can dive deeper in any sequence that you wish into it, into the practice. I, I do think it is a nice sort of logical progression of practices. There's nothing particularly magical or special about this sequence. So you know, there have been times where the order has been different than the order that it is now that I mentioned, but, um, generally sort of starting with settling the mind. And then, as I mentioned, starting in the shallow end of the pool and uh, loving kindness and compassion for a loved one is a good way to start. And, for many people, even the settling of the mind, so step one, is very, very difficult. So I, I don't mean to minimize that by any means by saying it's the shallow end of the pool. Um, you know, you can still feel fear in the shallow end of the pool.
0: It's an important step, though, and and it does set you up for success later on.
1: Yes, and you know, I think what's most important is to keep in mind that. You are uh, you need to actually do the practices. So, using our gym analogy, it's it's not sufficient just to you know wear gym clothes or to even go to the gym and to look around at the you know treadmill or the weights, but you actually have to be willing to engage in these practices. And what we find from our research is that there appears to be this dose response, whereby the amount of formal guided meditation practice. So, as I mentioned. Um, You come to class once a week for two hours, but then you're expected to listen to the guided audio recordings every single day. And that ranges from, you know, 15 minutes up to um, 35 minutes per day. And so we see this dose response whereby the people who are consistent with their practice, who are listening to their audio recordings actually experience the greatest benefits Um, So they have reduction in worrying, reduction in emotional suppression, reduction in mind wandering, and and a bunch of positive outcomes. And so it's not enough just to be this passive participant. As far as I know, it doesn't work through osmosis, Um, but you actually actually have to do these practices. And so um, you can't just go to the class, you know, once a week or work out with the trainer once a week, you really have to be willing uh, the rest of the week to engage in the work, to strengthen your muscle
2: around compassion. Oh, once again, it's all about the repeated effort. (laughs) What advice would you give someone who wasn't necessarily ready to commit to the kind of course that you are describing, um, but but was curious just to sort of see whether some of these practices might be beneficial um, to them. I can think of some people in my life who wouldn't want to sign up for eight weeks, but I might be able to convince to try a couple of things.
1: Yeah. I, I definitely understand that eight weeks can feel like a big commitment. And, um, you know, these days there are a lot of, uh, short meditations available online, uh, as well as apps to support meditation practice. So headspace or insight timer. And so you can go onto those apps and just try out some different meditation practices and see how it fits for you. Um, I found it really interesting recently, there are even some fitness programs that are providing uh, meditation resources. So Peloton, for example, if you go onto their app, they have a meditation section and you can do a five-minute meditation, you could do a 30-minute med- meditation. Similarly, Apple Fitness also has um, this meditation option now. So people are literally bringing meditation to the gym. They picked up on this analogy. And uh, again, as I mentioned, um, if you're interested, you can start out with a practice as short as five minutes and then go from there. So uh, that's what I would recommend. And another thing I would recommend is just thinking about some of the informal practices. So there's the formal practice that's sort of the sitting meditation practice. And that's oftentimes what people think about um but just as important uh is the informal practice or sometimes we refer to this as the off the cushion practice and so (laughs) one of the ways that you know you could imagine someone practicing this let's say you're not into meditation you don't want to get any of these apps you're not signing up for the eight-week course, but maybe you go to the grocery store. Um, you're not yet on Instacart. And so you're still going to the grocery store and you're behind a person with that full cart and they're in the you know quick checkout, but they still have the full cart. And you have that painfully slow cashier. What if in those moments you silently repeated in your own mind, things like, May all beings be happy and free from suffering. May all beings know peace and joy. Um, I find this to be a much more constructive use of my sort of mental energy than some of the judgmental thoughts that can come in my mind, like how I think people could be doing their jobs better or how I think people could be (laughs) reading instructions and signs a lot better,
2: those sorts of things. It said 10 items or less. Exactly. (laughs) Well, the Um, great thing about that, Horia, is you gave me what to say, right? Like, so sometimes I'll be that judgy person, right? But I think, oh, don't say that, but I don't have an easy thing to replace it with. You've given me something to replace it with, which is, which is great. Yeah. And if we sort of
1: believe the decades of research from cognitive behavioral therapy that suggests that what we think influences our emotions and our behaviors, then I can either continue to stand in that line, cultivating a lot of judgment And a lot of negative emotions towards these people, or I can cultivate, you know, wishing for that person to be happy and free from suffering. Um, Another recommendation I would suggest for some of your listeners who may not be ready to commit to an eight week course, who may not be interested in sitting on a cushion and meditating um, is checking out some of the books related to compassion, um, meditation, uh, and contemplative science. Um, So for some people, um, and we found this to be true when we were teaching this to engineers at Google and elsewhere, is that, For some folks, it's really important that they get a sense of the science behind these practices. And um, the good news is, is that, you know, you could go on to Google Scholar and check out meta-analyses on compassion, on meditation, contemplative science, um, or go on to, you know, Amazon or your favorite um, bookstore and look at some of the neuroscience of contemplative practice. And, And we can certainly add some book recommendations in the show notes if folks are interested.
0: Oh fantastic. We we were just talking about neuroplasticity a couple of episodes ago. So, love uh, incorporating neuroscience in here. Um, Another question um, related to you know the focus of the podcast: How is compassion important for leaders, or especially business leaders?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Given that suffering is inevitably a part of our lives, including our work lives, I've always taught to my students that compassion is important for leadership. Uh, It's important to develop. And then a few years ago, some big time Silicon Valley CEOs started talking about compassion and I was really delighted. So people like Jeff Weiner, the former CEO of LinkedIn brought in this um, notion of compassionate leadership to the forefront um, for people at LinkedIn. And, you know, In business, we have to make a lot of difficult decisions. Um, Our work is by definition interpersonal. So anytime that you're dealing with other people, whether it's colleagues, uh, customers, clients, um, cross-functional counterparts, there's some sort of distress or suffering that exists. And we can either ignore that and avoid it, um, pretend like it's not there, where we can choose to acknowledge it. And again, I'm not a betting woman, but I'm willing to bet that your listeners would say that if they're willing to do that, that they can be more effective in their jobs. They can be more effective in their interpersonal relationships um, in working with others in their team. So there's a lot to gain here. um, And I don't think that there's much to lose.
0: And you've been an instructor and a researcher in this area What are some changes specifically that you've seen um, for business leaders who develop compassion?
1: Yeah, so I really think that it impacts every single aspect of a person's life. So it really changes the way that you see the world. So as I mentioned, uh, if I stop and pause and I look at my salad, right, or if I stop and pause when I'm in that long line at the grocery store, it truly changes the way that I see people, the way that I interact with people. Uh, we know from research that there are spillover, spillover effects for employees. It's not that you can just segment your work life from your home life, and, and vice versa. And and I think particularly you know, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are now recognizing how interrelated we are, right? So what occurs in another country certainly has an impact on me here in Northern California. And that there's really little to no divide between our well-being at work and our well-being at home. And so I think we're only going to see an increased interest in developing compassionate leaders, Um, As I mentioned, Jeff Wiener, um, the former CEO at LinkedIn, has been a big advocate of compassionate leadership and bringing compassion into the workplace. And so on LinkedIn Learning, for example, you can even take a short course on this. And other organizations have also implemented similar programs around increasing emotional intelligence. And a component of that does include compassion, um, does include recognizing suffering
0: in others. So, if somebody were a leader interested in in establishing a compassionate program at their at their employment, they could actually look into bringing something in house or or bringing somebody in to train some of the employees
1: absolutely so people um as I mentioned, Monica Warline and Jane Dutton are sort of the premier people in the world that do that, but um, certainly. And and as I mentioned, uh, a lot of these skills around compassionate leadership are only becoming uh, more important as we are um, having employees working from home that were more interconnected than than
0: ever before. Wow, You've covered so much incredible material today. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you all for listening. We hope to see you in the next episode of The Mac and Willis Show.
0: Malay Show.